0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
2: It's estimated that there are as many as 7,000 different known rare diseases in the world. 10-year-old Sam has vanishing white matter disease. And he also loves soccer, race cars, and music, especially Niall Horan from One Direction, whom he met.
3: They just said they had a drive for me, and I knew it would be. I got to meet Niall Horan
2: and meet 12-year-old Sophie, a comedian, singer, and advocate for people like her who have Williams Syndrome. She has some techniques for when she feels stressed out.
0: Take a deep breath. And then ask my mom for a hug to make me happy again.
2: You'll meet both of these kids' moms, too, and hear about the joy and frustration and growth that comes with having a kid with a rare disease. I'm Kyone Wolf, That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. I'm not a parent, so it's tough for me to wrap my head around what it's like when you have a kid. Furthermore, I don't know what it's like when, at some point after your kid's grand arrival on the planet Earth, you discover that your child has a health condition, one that's rare. It's estimated that there are as many as 7,000 different known rare diseases in the world. In the U.S. it's defined as any disease or condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people. Today you'll meet two of them and their moms. Later in the show you'll hear my conversation with a 10-year-old who has vanishing white matter disease and how his mom ensures that his especially time-limited life is as bright and as bold as possible. But first, meet Erin Rupelo, who's a special education paraeducator in Kensington, Maryland, and her 12-year-old daughter, Sophie. Along with being a comedian who loves to sing, Sophie has Williams Syndrome. It's caused by the spontaneous deletion of genes on chromosome number 7, right when conception happens. Often, these deletions are totally random, not genetic, and researchers believe that the incidence of a child with this condition is about 1 in 15,000 in the United States. In addition to being Sophie's mom, Erin is the Mid-Atlantic Regional Chairperson for the Williams Syndrome Association, so I asked her to tell me more about what it is and how she discovered that Sophie had it.
1: Well, Sophie um, was born on time, and in the hospital, they were a little concerned because she had a murmur and she had a lot of extra skin, a long philtrum, and, um, a small nose. A doctor came in and she said, I want to have the NICU doctor come. There's just some clusters and, you know, I just him to take a look at her. So of course I was freaking out because when she was born, she, I didn't think she looked like me at all. And I was crying a lot. And uh, the doctor came in and he said, she's fine. Do you have anybody in your family have a long filter? You know, and I said, actually, my dad does. And she, he said, what about the small nose? And I said, no, <laughs> nobody in my family has a small nose. Um, and he said, you know, let's, you know, we've got her, we the doctor saw, he thinks there's some heart flow. They did an echo. He said, um, he'll talk to you and, you know, just go to your pediatrician in a couple days because my on-call pediatrician didn't go to my hospital that I was delivering at. It, I didn't even know the doctor that was concerned. And so I went to my pediatrician a couple days later. She was like, don't worry about it. She's fine. You know, in two weeks to the cardiologist just to check up on her flow. He said that the hole in her heart had closed The flow was still a little bit there, making noises. He was a little concerned, but he said she should grow out of it by eight months. He sent us on our way. Um, Sophie was very easy until she turned two weeks old and gained all her weight back and decided she was never going to sleep. And she was miserable and we couldn't put her down. And I was constantly calling the doctor and concerned. And I was that crazy mom and everything's fine. And then she turned three months and she wasn't smiling. And that's when my son was smiling at a month. And of course you read all those, what your baby should do, what to expect at certain ages. Or what she doesn't know how to do. So um, at three months I was in the doctor's office. She had ear infections. She had stomach issues. I mean, we just didn't sleep at all. Constantly holding her. And at three months, the doctor finally said, do you really think there's something wrong with her? And I said, yes. And she, I said, she's not babbling. She's not smiling. And she said, okay, you can go make an appointment with Kennedy Krieger Institute. See if they say anything, but I know you're going to come back at her six month appointment and she's going to be giggling. And, you know, I said, okay. So I went and the doctor there Thought she looked normal, which whatever that means, um, except that she was low tone,
2: low tone. What's that mean?
1: Her head was still real bobbly. She wasn't firming up like she should have been at that age. She should have already been holding her head up and she wasn't. And I wasn't even looking. I didn't even notice that. So I, we, I we just now? did tons of tests, tons and tons and tons and tons of tests. Kenny Krieger wrote up all the tests. My pediatrician's the one that submitted all the tests. So she was the one that was calling and saying, okay, well, it's negative for this and it's negative for that. And then she called me and she said, can you and Brian come into the office at lunch? And I knew that she was going to tell me something. My dad, myself, and my husband met us, you know, all at the doctor's office. And that's when she told us she had Williams syndrome. And that's when I Googled it and was like, what do you mean? She didn't look like she had anything. She looks just like a child with Williams syndrome.
2: So you are the Mid-Atlantic Regional Chair for the Williams Syndrome Association. So you've got some authority on this. What do we know for sure about Williams syndrome?
1: It is a deletion on chromosomes, a micro deletion on chromosome seven. We know that the elastin gene is always missing. When you have a child with Williams with diagnosed with William syndrome. The elastin gene is the gene where a lot of helps a lot of your muscles stretch. So that's why a lot of children with Williams syndrome have heart, um, narrowing, narrowing blood vessels, wherever those vessels are, kidneys, all those areas can cause concerns. Your GI tract, they're finding lots can of I different areas now? that are affected.
2: What are some telltale consistent symptoms or appearances of Williams syndrome?
1: Uh, typically, kids with Williams syndrome have small button noses, you know, the long part between the nose and the mouth. They have big, wide smiles. So, if you smile,
3: <laughs> confirmed. Um, they have like a lot to of do that again.
1: Google. Uh, likes to say they're elfin characteristics, short stature, although Sophie, you know, there's spectrums. So you have kids that have more intense looks. A lot of kids typically grow up to look like their family members with the characteristics of a person with Williams syndrome. I can typically spot a person with Williams syndrome based off their looks and their personality. Right.
2: Tell me more about what sort of personality traits are common.
1: Friendly, nobody's a stranger, gregarious. Now, granted, she definitely, you know, has her shy moments. I get
0: shy a little bit. You know,
1: she's not not as outgoing as some other individuals that I've met. Um, However, they have magnetic personalities. Ever since she was a baby, I used to have people say things to me about her and just gravitate to her like she was some... You're not a
0: villain. You're not a villain. No, <laughs> the no opposite, the
1: opposite yeah. of a
2: villain.
1: Just they don't judge. There's no judgment there. It's very from the heart, pure, wholesome, tons of energy, and just she can read me without me even telling her how I feel. You know, it's very they're very in tune to feelings. Um, she can sense when somebody likes her, or doesn't mm-hmm. like her. Which we've experienced issues with school because when there's when if there's somebody that's not interested in teaching her um the right way, they can tell. I mean, can anybody really? But I think that the emotions we play on her positives, we play
2: on the many positives that she comes with. Sophie, can I ask you questions? Yes. I approve. Your shirt says All you need is love. What does that mean?
0: All you need is love because my mom loves me and I love her.
2: If somebody didn't know what Williams Syndrome is, how would you explain Williams Syndrome to somebody?
0: Like, Williams Syndrome is not bad. It's good. It's happy, though. But... I don't like when people are mean sometimes and it makes me really sad and angry and my heart's going to break. So I don't want people to be mean to me.
2: If someone around you is sad, what do you do?
0: Well, I would say, are you okay? Do you need any help? Do you want me to talk to the principal? Do you want me... To tell the teacher something's wrong. You can tell me because I'm your friend. And I'm trying to help you. When you feel
2: sad or angry, how do you make yourself feel better?
0: Take a deep breath. And then ask my mom for a hug. (laughs) And then she gives me a kiss on the forehead to make me happy again.
2: When people meet you for the first time, what do you hope they think about you?
0: Well, hope they're nice to me and not rude to me, because I want to be a good friend to people.
2: What does it mean to be a good friend?
0: Like when you say, hi, my name is Sylvie. I'm new. I know the new classroom. Can you please help me? <laughs> good friend will help you. Where you
2: need to go. Sophie, do you consider yourself a funny person? Well,
0: sometimes when I do jokes it makes me laugh.
2: <laughs> Can you tell me some jokes?
0: Can you do your knock-knock work? Knock-knock.
2: Who's there? Moo. Moo-hoo. Moo
0: who? Yeah. Moo! That's gotcha, good.
2: <laughs> what kind of things make you laugh besides jokes?
0: Like sometimes I like to laugh really hard. It makes my cheek red. But what makes you laugh? like when someone says "boo," I laugh. <laughs> Mommy, try it.
2: Boo. <laughs> <laughs> she made me laugh too. I hear that people who have Williams syndrome like music a lot. Is that true for you? Do you like music?
0: I love music a lot. Like, really much.
2: Yeah. What kind of music do you like?
0: I like Trolls music. I like. Wait, what
2: kind of music? The Trolls movie soundtrack. Oh.
0: It makes me want to dance and sing.
2: Is there a song in your head right now?
0: If you were Elsa, what would you do? You would sing Let It Go, and then if you were Elsa, you you can sing Let It Go, Let It Go. Can't go back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away from the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the story John Couldn't find me anyway.
2: Yes! That's beautiful. You have a beautiful voice. Have you heard that a lot?
3: Thank Thank you, you, Mommy. You're welcome. I'm not
0: the one that just complimented you. Thank (laughs) you. Sometimes when my voice come out it makes me want to sing even louder.
2: Have you ever met somebody else who has Williams Syndrome?
0: Edie's my best friend, and she lives in Texas, and I would like to live with her yeah. one day! Oh, really? Yes!
2: <laughs> breaking news, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is
1: breaking news.
2: If you were in charge of the whole world, President Sophie, Empress Sophie... And you could let everybody know about Williams Syndrome. What would you say about Williams Syndrome?
0: I would rule the world. You would
1: rule the world, but what would you say about Williams Syndrome?
3: Williams Syndrome is not bad, it's good. <laughs> Go, sons, <search>, get him.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, Aaron, what does Sophie do that makes you smile?
1: Everything, her spirit is just really infectious.
0: Mom, that is the sweetest thing. (laughs) How do you wish people
2: approach you when they notice that Sophie has some special needs?
1: I welcome questions. Welcoming her, you know she pretty much does That's the work. It. I'm done with you. Sit down. No,
0: I'm done. I okay, I know
1: you do, but you need to wait five
2: minutes. It's okay if she has to go.
0: i want to go. All right, go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Sophie. Thank you. I'm
1: yes. So I would just, yeah. I mean, I think that it's just Sophie does that work? So it's not as much as me approaching them or them approaching me. It's more Sophie approaching them and just to embrace it and to let her in your world. Because when you do, you change so much. She changes so much. I've seen, you know, we have therapy appointments and we go into, we haven't since COVID, but we would go into waiting rooms and, She will introduce herself and you see some kids who are taken back by it and you see their parents embrace it. And then you see some who are taken back by it and you see parents who don't embrace it. And it's really their loss, in my opinion. That's where I am at this point, because anybody I'm always apologizing which I need to stop. But I find myself saying, I'm so sorry, Sophie, leave them alone. And every no, you know, and then the next time we come in, it's like, "Hola," and she's saying hi to everybody. And so I just feel like for everybody to just be kind and to just look at anybody they meet as an individual and give them that chance before you decide whether or not you're not interested in, in that individual.
2: What are some things people say that you really wish they would stop saying?
1: Um, I hate the, the R word. It is something that kind of hits me in the gut when I hear it. You know, one thing that bothers me sometimes is, you know, Sophie will perseverate sometimes on questions or do something and they'll get very frustrated with her. And while I agree it's frustrating, sometimes it's out of her control And it rubs me wrong when I, you know, hear the tone that's coming out of the voice because I know she can't control it. So just to take the time to understand her and why it's happening and then come about approaching it without, instead of with annoyance, but with teaching, you know, a teaching approach as opposed to just being irritated and annoyed because that hurts my feelings because I know that it's not something she's doing intentionally. It's something that she just is so excited about and she just can't stop talking about it.
2: (laughs) What do you wish Sophie would keep in mind about herself as she grows up?
1: I just hope that she continues to be confident to not care what other people think you know, I'll see her try to introduce herself to someone. And I've seen how she's matured over the years where she'll say, it's okay. I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to be your friend. And she really advocates for herself and to see her do that. It's like, I don't even need to get involved because she does the teaching to the other person. So, you know, she doesn't climb into the hole and hide. She's just totally herself. And I just hope she continues to be her own individual and not worry about, what sometimes the societal norms say as far as interacting with individuals.
2: It sounds a lot like she's a good influence on you.
1: Yes. She has changed me a lot. I have always been a planner and have that type A personality, and I still like to have things planned, but she's kind of let me just let things happen and fall into place and take one day at a time. Um, I also professionally, I'm a special ed paraeducator. I look kind of through my experiences with her and what's worked best to approach my kiddos that I work with in, in my school. And um, I've, I've learned through her. I see how she learns and now, and I know it's not just the way she learns. I think it's the way a lot of our kids learn and by developing relationships and really showing those kids how much I care about them, then they want to work for me. And I feel like she taught me that. So um, I've taken a lot of my parenting through her and applied it into my professional world.
2: Well, I've asked pretty much everything I planned on asking. Is there anything that I missed that you want to make sure you say? No, I just
1: thank you for shedding light on these rare conditions because all individuals are unique. And I feel like we miss out on, you know, so much by not educating ourselves and getting out there to open our worlds to other people.
2: So thank you. That was Erin Rupelo and her daughter, Sophie. For more information on Williams Syndrome, visit Williams-Syndrome.org. When we get back,
4: we're struggling. So if there's somebody struggling, we want to help in any way we can, because we know what a difference, just a, a note or just a little bit of support means.
2: How a boy with vanishing white matter disease changed the way his mother sees the world. I'm kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting two children who have rare diseases and their moms. Allison Buck of Greenwich, Connecticut, didn't know about vanishing white matter disease till her son Sam, who was two years old at the time, took a flying leap off of a bed. But let's back up to that day back in 2013 and find out what he was like before and after his crash landing and exactly what this rare disease is.
4: He was normal as far as we knew. He, um, he was born healthy weight and he was always very clumsy when he was little. So when he was learning to walk, he used to fall over all the time, but we never really kind of thought anything of it. And then when he was two, we were living in the UK at the time. My husband is English and the kids are all dual citizens. And so we were living in the UK at the time and he literally just launched himself off our bed. Why? Why? <laughs> Still have no idea, but he did. He was a two-year-old. He landed on the floor on carpet where there were like two layers of carpet and he was unresponsive, which was, uh, I mean, he's our third, so we're not paranoid parents. You know, it was kind of like, but this was weird. So he was completely unresponsive for what felt like forever, but probably was only 30 seconds. And then he came to and he started screaming and he seemed okay. He kind of calmed down and he seemed fine. And so we, and then we stood him up and he collapsed in a heap. And we're like, okay, well, this isn't. And we kept trying to stand him up and he couldn't stand. We took him to the hospital and they didn't run any tests. They just kind of looked at him and said, oh, it's probably a hip sprain. Go home, see if it gets better. And it did get better. He did start walking again, but it was never right. You know, He would cross his legs and he would trip over all the time. So we kept taking him back to the doctor being like, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And finally we got them to refer us to a pediatrician Um, And they did an x-ray and they did a CAT scan. And the second they did a CAT scan, they called us in. And then on Easter Sunday, they called us and said, you need to, we were supposed to go away that week because it's a holiday in the UK. And and they said, you need to cancel your plans and you need to be back in the hospital in London um, to do an MRI and a lumbar puncture. So, So they did the MRI. And then within a few days, we went into the office and she sat us down and said, he has this incredibly rare disease called vanishing white matter disease. They've only ever seen one other case in London. And she said, you know, it's progressive. There's like 200 cases worldwide and it's terminal. Basically, go home and make him comfortable and there's nothing you can do.
2: What was the first thing you thought when you got that diagnosis?
4: Honestly, it was a blur. I remember sitting in the office. I remember she offered us a cup of tea. And I think I said, like, I'm going to puke if I drink it. No, I'm good. (laughs) And I remember we kind of, you know, do you have any questions? And We were both like deer in headlights, basically. We just kind of rushed out of there because we just needed to process it. And honestly, it didn't didn't take us very long to process it. Like, we went home. We researched. There wasn't anything online. And I think within about a couple of days, we decided that we wanted to let him live. Because a bump on the head or a fever causes a sudden loss of white matter, which means we could coddle him and make sure he, you know, stays home from school and, you know, doesn't get a fever and make sure he never bumps his head or we could let him live, you know, knowing that we'd probably have less time with him. And we both consciously made the decision to let him live because if his life was gonna be short anyway, we might as well enjoy the time he has. And that's what we've done. We've made sure that he's had as many experiences as he possibly can. We've traveled extensively. He's been to like 30 countries and 49 states. We're missing, only missing one. Which one? Oregon. (laughs) COVID put a a bit of a, he's getting hard to travel with these days. So we kind of, our plan was to do it last summer you know, kind of thinking this would be perfect timing because he's getting kind of hard to get on a plane and we will kind of be done with our states and then we'll kind of do road trips, you know, but now it's like, okay, well, maybe this summer we can kind of squeeze in Oregon.
2: What kind of understanding does he have of vanishing white matter disease?
4: A pretty good understanding. He knows he has a brain disease um, and increasingly he's very aware that his life is not going to be as long as other people's and he's you know it it worries him we have not tried to hide it from him I mean how can we it's impossible and I I think we've always been so open we kind of didn't expect him to live this long honestly so I think he never really had an understanding and now that he's gotten to that point where he does it it, it's more of a challenge you know as a family to try and reassure someone when you know that the ending really isn't going to be Happy, you know, it's like without it's kind of it's a fine line between lie outright lying and comforting, and and it's a hard it's hard to balance. It really is. I, I don't know. He may just have gotten to the point where he's just aware, you know, a, kind of aware of his own mortality and kind of understands in some ways what's happening to him. He can't not. He's cognitively they remain relatively untapped, which is a, a double-edged sword. So it's great because you can have a conversation with him, and he's he understands everything you're saying and he's quite a little character but then he also understands what's happening to him and so that makes it harder
2: so now it's 8 years since he launched himself off of the bed in what ways are his symptoms manifesting now today
4: so he um hasn't been able to walk or stand since i can remember um you know i think within the first year or two he lost those abilities so he's fully wheelchair dependent He's incontinent. He wears diapers. He he can't transfer. So, you know, he needs to be picked up and moved from one place to another constantly. He can still kind of feed himself, but not always. He can't read. He can't write. He can speak, but it's quite slow and his hands shake. So he kind of has a hard time grabbing onto things and, and stabilizing himself. But again, cognitively, he's pretty intact. So he still communicates and is happy and lively and funny. And, and so that's great.
2: Sam has two older siblings, Imogen and James. How have they responded to this life with their little brother?
4: I say we we have worried how it'll affect them in the future, especially if when Sam passes away. I think him and his brother are extremely close and, and we do it does make us a little nervous about, you know, what age that will be and how vulnerable they will be. But I have to say, um, I think it's just made them stronger people. Um, COVID hasn't really, you know, they, they'll complain. They're like, yeah, I wish I could be at school, but they've never once asked to go to school. They get it. Like they're incredibly upbeat and positive And they're used to having to give things up because they when you've got a severely disabled sibling there's a lot you just can't do you know and they're used to kind of be when we travel when we do anything that that we have to limit what we're able to do because it has to be within their brother's abilities and so they've had to give up a lot because of that so i I think this doesn't faze them in the least they're just like okay yeah whatever
2: (laughs) got it when people meet sam how do you hope that they would behave around him. And in what ways do they behave
4: that pisses you off? People assume because he's in a wheelchair, he's also mentally incapacitated, which sometimes is the case, but very often is not. And so very often people normally will speak to him like he's a baby or not speak to him at all. Um, And very often talk to me and be like, how old is he? You know, like as if he's an infant, It's like he can talk to you, you could ask him. So you would hope that people would
2: assume competence?
4: Assume cognitively that he is intact before you assume he is not, just because he's in a wheelchair. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. And I think that's very common with wheelchair users. They will find that people often assume just because your legs don't work, the rest of your your brain doesn't work.
2: You've written that being a parent of someone with this disease is a life of extremes, will you tell me more about that?
4: I, there's just, there's no middle ground, really. It's just, it's extreme happiness. It's extreme sadness. Um, most of the time it's extreme happiness, but it just feels like there's never just a, oh, oh, okay. Meh. <laughs> yeah. I, before Sam got sick, I kind of didn't realize that those things exist in parallel. Before that I was either happy or I was sad. And now I'm both at the same time i you know i have extreme joy watching him do something or but then underneath there's a level of sadness you know knowing that it's temporary or you know that we won't be able to have that forever so i think that's kind of you know what people don't understand and i think the joys are so much higher than they used to be because the lows are so much lower than we ever could have experienced before have
2: you have you prepared your, have you prepared yourself in any way for life after sam
4: we've tried to i mean i think my husband and i both try to be very realistic about this. We've, you know, we started a foundation and we've tried to raise money for research and we've done, but we've always been very realistic about the fact that it's not going to come in time for Sam, you know, so we've never kind of thought that what we've trying to do would save him, but we hope that it will save another family's child. Um, so we've tried to, but I don't think you can, you know, I, I, For me personally, running has really, is good for my mental health and I run and that's when I think about these things, which is good for me. I I don't think I've run in eight years without tearing up or having to stop because I get kind of pains and, but otherwise like during your day-to-day life, you can kind of forget about it Um, because you're, you know, you're just kind of ticking along like normal and you don't, we're so used to having a disabled child that you don't really think about. The fact that he's disabled. But I think run, I run, and that's when I think about it. And I do do things like plan his funeral in my head and think, well, <laughs> who do we need to invite and what will we say and who will we speak? And, but I don't think anything can prepare you for what life would be like to not have that person there. And I don't think knowing that somebody's going to die helps it make it any easier in any way. So I think in a lot of ways, I think it actually will make it harder because I think we've become so much closer to him and closer as a family because of his illness, that I think losing him is going to make it because, you know, again, loss it's the degree of connection means that the degree of loss is that much greater. It kind of doesn't matter how you're related. Obviously the loss of a child is the extreme level of loss, but I think as a family, we become so close and we spend so much time together that his loss will just we can't even contemplate honestly you can't even what that will look like because he's such an integral part of our family um and occasionally he'll go to camp for like a day or two and it's just strange you know it's just <laughs> we're not having him there but it still doesn't prepare us it, you know i don't think there's any real way to prepare yeah
2: when you look back at the kind of parent you were the kind of person you were before sam how has sam changed you
4: Oh, I mean, fundamentally, I, I think I'm a completely different person. Um, I've never really cared what other people think, but I think you've always kind of have this underlying like, oh wait, what are they doing? What are they? And now I'm like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> like, I don't care what anybody else is doing. I just don't care. You know, I do what I do, and don't worry about anybody else. <laughs> like I think it's given us a lot of freedom to be who we are and kind of cut out the fat. You know, cut out the people in our lives who aren't bringing anything to the table. I think he's made us much more empathetic. You know, we worry as much about us getting COVID as giving it to somebody else. Like, and I think it's allowed us to kind of care more about other people's difficulties, no matter what they are. And it's made us much more generous. I think, you know, like we're struggling. So if there's somebody struggling, we want to help in any way we can, because we know what a difference, just a, a note or just a little bit of support means. And hopefully, you know that's something that will continue for the rest of our lives, even when he's gone. But I think, yeah i don't I don't think the person I am now is really even recognizable from the person I was eight or nine years ago when my kids were driving me crazy, and I was trying pulling my hair out, and I would bring them to any activity I could find just to have them out of my hair for an hour and um and that person's all gone. Now I I secretly love COVID for forcing my 14-year-old to stay home with me. (laughs) That is rare. (laughs) I know, because she would not be home with me if she didn't have to. (laughs) So it's like, yes!
2: (laughs) (laughs) When you have a child with a terminal diagnosis, I imagine, and I can only imagine, that there's also a lot of anger.
4: Yes, at first. And you know, we'd go to like an amusement park and you'd see kids being kind of cutting in line or being obnoxious. And you'd think, "Why, why my kid?" You know, and you know it's irrational. You know it's it's such a horrible thought. But you'd be like, "Well, why? why my why my kid, this sweet kid and not that kid, you know, like that kid who's pushing over, you know, like, why?
2: what was it that pulled you through that compulsion?" To lean into that anger. I
4: I think it goes away on its own. And, And I think also we've learned to focus on our own happiness, you know, like you have to learn to find the joy in the little things in the everyday, or you'll drive yourself crazy, you know, because if you focus on what you don't have, you know, you just can't focus on what you do. And I think we've had to learn to find the joy in all the little everyday moments in the playing games and the reading books and the just being together. And so I think it kind of goes away because you kind of find your own joy in the situation. And honestly, I think him being terminal has kind of allowed us the freedom to find that. I think if there was a chance we'd spend all our time and energy fighting for a treatment or uh, being in the hospital and in and out of, treatments. And I think it's allowed us to just be and live and have experiences and be together as a family and, and form all these wonderful memories. And I, I think it's actually benefited us in a lot of ways, which I think people will find impossible to believe. But I think we've actually been able to be happier as a family because he has a terminal diagnosis. And I think that in, I'd say the anger still will rear its head when you see something, you know, like, again, you'll see somebody doing something to their kid and just be like, oh, like, why, why? <laughs> or people complaining. And I think, uh, you know, I've had to get offline a lot during this pandemic because the amount of whining over stuff that should not be whined about. <laughs> and it's like, it makes my blood boil. But I, it, I think, again, I'm able to kind of take a step back more than I would have before and be like, why am I doing this? I'm just not going to get online. <laughs> I don't need to see it. And then it won't make me angry. <laughs> Let me just focus on my little bubble. <laughs> what do you wish you knew
2: that day back in 2013 that you know now?
4: I thought the rest of Sam's life would be miserable. I think I wish I knew how much happiness we would find in the situation. I That felt impossible at the time. And I feel like With any newly diagnosed parent, they would find the same. They would find it'll feel almost impossible to find joy in your life again. But actually, you know, it's you'll find even more joy than you've had before. And then that's what we found. That like we were able to find even more joy in our life, in our everyday life. You know, it's we've loved the last nine months. It's been great just being together. And it's like we haven't done much of anything besides watch TV and play games, but we're together and I mean, that's what you know, I wish I knew that I would be able to find so much joy in the little things in life and and so much happiness because we are truly happy and probably happier than most of the families that we know, just just because we know how much worse it can get. <laughs> and I think that gives you a lot of perspective that's very valuable,
2: well, I've asked you everything I planned on asking, but I want to make sure we cover everything is there Is there anything I haven't asked you? that you want to talk about or say
4: no i think that's pretty much kind of covered what our life looks like thank you you're welcome thank you for telling our story but if you'd like to meet him i can bring you downstairs
2: yes please i've got to meet sam that was allison buck of greenwich connecticut after the break Oh, you're gonna meet Sam, and you're gonna love him. And you'll find out why I'm playing this One Direction song underneath this outro. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. <laughs> This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting two kids who have rare diseases and the mothers who love them. Allison and Nick of Greenwich, Connecticut found out their son Sam has vanishing white matter disease after he jumped off the bed at two years old and hit his head. It turns out that some head injuries and some infections, among a few other things, can reveal and exacerbate the symptoms of this genetic neurological condition. It destroys myelin, the brain's white matter, and the transmission of brain cells to the rest of the body is permanently affected. Sam is 10 years old now, and he relies on a wheelchair, needs help eating and getting around. But vanishing white matter cannot stop his curiosity for the world, his love for traveling, or his keen sense of humor. After chatting with Allison, she took our Zoom call downstairs to meet Sam. All right, here we go. Hi, Sam. This is Sam. Hi, (laughs) my name is Kayone. It's nice to meet you. Nice
3: to meet
2: you too. Is it okay if I ask you some questions about yourself? Yeah. First of all, How are you today? Good. What have you done today so far? Uh, School. What's your favorite thing to learn in school? What's your favorite subject?
3: I like
2: math. What's your favorite band?
3: Nile Horan.
2: Now, for the two or three people who don't know who Niall Horan is, who is he? He's a he's a singer who used to be in a famous band, right?
3: Yeah. He used to be in One
2: Direction. One Direction, right. And I also heard that you met Niall Horan. Is that true? Yeah. Tell me everything.
3: They just said they had a surprise. From me, and I knew it, it would be I got to meet Niall Harvin.
4: He was very nice. He spent a long time talking to you, too, didn't he?
2: Yeah.
4: He was very nice.
2: I bet. What's your favorite song of his to sing? My
3: favorite song from One
2: Direction is Food God. Fools Gold. Fools how, Gold. How does it go? Fools
3: Gold. Yeah, we met Yeah, you met
2: Da, 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 da We met. Nice, Sam. Hey, I also heard that you love Halloween. What are some of the things that you've been for Halloween?
3: I've been A bunny riding a carrot this year. And I've been Sebastian Vettel.
2: Sebastian Vettel. That's the F1 race car driver, right?
3: Yeah. But he's actually changing cars next season because he wasn't
2: doing good this season. Is it true also that that you met him? Yeah.
3: He was nice and he let
2: me sit in his car. How did it feel to sit in his race car? Right. <laughs> How fast do you think you would go in that race car? Very. (laughs) Uh, Can we talk about Halloween some more? Yeah. So your mom is an amazing carpenter and makes all these cool outfits for your wheelchair. So you were saying you were a bunny and a carrot, a pirate. And I was Elvis. Presley. In a in a pink Cadillac. Yeah. Do you? I have one more question. Do you know how lucky you are to have a mom who is so talented? Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite Halloween candy? I like Kit
3: Kats.
2: Oh, Kit Kats are awesome. Yeah. How does it feel when you are in your Halloween outfit and you're going down the street and people see you? And they go, oh, wow, that's so cool. How, how does it feel when people see you in your Halloween outfit?
3: Good. But this year, they wasn't many people out.
2: I also understand that you lost a tooth recently. Yeah. Well, the world wants to know, Sam, what happened to the tooth?
3: That tooth fairy took it. She gave you one dollar.
2: One dollar. Do you think one dollar is a good amount, not enough money, too much money?
3: I think it's a good amount. That's a fair exchange. Yeah. Too a little. They're quite simple, yeah. My mom told me not to wiggle it. And I wiggled (laughs) the (laughs) end. Then it fell out at night. And I said, Mom, my tooth fell
2: out. How did it feel to see your tooth in your hand instead of in your mouth? Hmm. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Because you knew the tooth fairy was going to come. Yeah. I also heard that you love soccer or football. What's your favorite team? Chelsea. Ah, Chelsea from London. So what is it about Chelsea? Why are you so committed to that team?
3: It used to actually be a big joke because my dad likes to live up Wow. so it, you don't be a joke. But now I really like Chelsea.
2: Does Chelsea win more often than they lose?
3: They have a the goalkeeper called Kepper, which is terrible at goalkeeping. <laughs> Poor Kepper.
2: <laughs>
3: Last. Then they lost one now, but the other goalkeeper made a big mistake by giving that other team a penalty so they
2: won. If you could play any position in soccer slash football, what position would you play?
3: I would be the goalkeeper because I would probably be better than Kevin. What? <laughs> <laughs> <But> I <promise. laughs>
2: Sam, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Thank you so much for talking with me today and for making me laugh. Bye. Bye. That was Sam and his mom, Allison Buck, of Greenwich, Connecticut. To learn more, visit the VWM Families Foundation at vwmff.org. And to keep track of what Sam's up to and to see those amazing Halloween costumes, visit samvsvwm.wordpress.com. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about things like stuttering and other speech disfluencies, what it feels like walking out of the annual meeting to set the doomsday clock, what it's like having your arm ripped off by a tiger, blindness and the philosophy of self-determination, and what it's like to not be capable of feeling any physical pain, visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if a rare disease is part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts. This will be a topic we revisit. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.